0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, time travel through X chromosomes, seeking a genetic memory that will explain why men won't ask for directions, determinism, and free pills. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Korea's Son of the Black Sword, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk with the editors and authors of a new collection, Stellaris, People of the Stars... This is a science fiction, science fact duo collection with essays and stories. Love those things. It's really fun. That is about what changes humans will have to make to themselves to become people of the stars. It's a really cool concept, and with us to discuss it are Les Johnson, Robert E. Hampson, the editors and authors also, Sarah A. Hoyt, Kathy Smith, and Daniel Hoyt. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now, here's the news. We have new fiction at the Bain.com website. It's free. It's good stuff. This is a story set in the world of hard science fiction sense of wonder expert Will McCarthy's new novel, Antediluvian. The story is called Talk Girl. She is Talk Girl, the first human to formulate sentences, entire thoughts. She is also a nemochromonaut named Dr. Bethany Remmert, who gambles her career as a geneticist on the chance to dive into a past encoded in the mitochondrial quantum resonance within us all. Bethany's colleagues may laugh in doubt, but others lost in the mist of time laughed at Talk Girl, too. And Talk Girl changed the world. Talk Girl by Will McCarthy is now available for your reading pleasure and to get you interested in an Antediluvian at Bain.com. After October 15th, it'll be available in the free ebook download, also available at Bain.com at Bain ebooks. That one is called Free Stories 2019. You can download it and read it for free. So get it and read it and feel your wonder tingle.
2: I want to welcome Les Johnson, Robert E. Hansen, Sarah A. Hoyt, Daniel Hoyt, and Catherine L. Smith to the podcast. Hello, folks.
3: Hey. i nice Tony. to be here.
4: Hello. Thanks for having Hi. us.
2: Well, you're welcome. Les Johnson is a husband, father, physicist, manager, and author of Science Fiction and Science Facts Stuff in <laughs> his day job. He works for NASA, where he serves as the solar sail principal investigator for America's first interplanetary solar sail mission, the Near Earth Asteroid Scout. He's the author of the science fiction novel Mission to Methany from Bain, as well as Back to the Moon and On to the Asteroid with Travis S. Taylor. Um, Les also writes Popular Science, lots of it for the Bain.com website. Robert E. Hampson also writes bunches of stuff uh, for our website for the, on the nonfiction side. But lately, he's turned to science fiction and is the author of a lot of cool stories. With over 35 uh, years of experience in neuroscience from animals to humans, he's recently led a team that demonstrated the first neural prosthetic to restore human memory using the brain's own neural codes has advised more than a dozen SF writers, as well as game developers and TV writers via the National Academy of Sciences, Science and Entertainment Exchange, writes both fiction and nonfiction, as we, for lots of SF audiences. Sarah A. Hoyt published over 30 novels in science fiction, fantasy, mystery, history, and maybe romance. Also, over 100 short stories in magazines like Analog, Asimovs, and lots of anthologies. She was born in Portugal and has won the Prometheus Award for her novel Dark Ship Thieves and other SF novels. Analog. I also
5: won the Dragon with Kevin Anderson for Uncharted.
2: Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. should mention that, yes. Dragon <laughs> Award-winning Sarah, Sarah A. Hoyt, <laughs> who, who wrote Uncharted with Kevin J. Anderson. Uh, which is an amazingly cool uh, sort of flintlock fantasy, weird alternate history, um, the novel set in the American West, the Lewis and Clark Expedition. She lives in Colorado with Daniel M. Hoyt. Daniel M. Hoyt, who's also with us, is a systems architect for Rocket Rocket Trajectory Software, professional SF author and an expert on royalty calculations for indie presses. Hmm. His first sale went to Analog. He's been in a lot of other anthologies, uh, and notably Transhuman and The Bane Suburban Fantasies that Esther Friesner edited. And he is the author of Ninth Euclid's Prince. And uh, one of these days, he and his wife, Sarah A. Hort, are going to get that collaborative novel done, and we are looking forward to that. A science fiction reader from early age, Kathy Smith grew up wondering about alien planets. Since she couldn't study aliens in college, she studied insects, which most people would argue is close enough. With a background in insect molecular genetics and evolutionary uh, systematics, she has been a consultant to numerous science fiction authors looking to create interesting aliens. And now she writes stories about interesting aliens and interesting alien planets, among other things. So we got a pretty high-powered bunch here. um, And what we're going to talk about is this great new anthology that's out at booksellers everywhere called Stellaris, People of the Stars. These are um, stories that are that it's a it's one of our collections that Bain likes to do. That is a collection of science fiction and science fact articles. Maybe instead of me trying to describe it, maybe Les, you could you could start and give us an idea of the overall project, and maybe uh, Rob could could chime in as well. Sure, I'll be glad to do that.
4: Yeah, Stellaris came from a lot of different directions, but primarily it grew out of a uh, what we call a working track at a symposium that several people on this call participated in uh, for the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Workshop. It's a, a nonprofit uh, space advocacy group centered in the Tennessee Valley between Oak Ridge, going through Chattanooga, into Huntsville, And they host meetings, we we host meetings every 18 months or so, where we get scientists, science fiction writers, members of the community, general public together, and start wrestling with the issues of of what it's going to be like when humanity is ready to finally take those first steps to the stars, and the kinds of things that we need to be doing now to help lay the groundwork for that to be possible in the future. Well, it was at, at one of these meetings in Chattanooga, Tennessee, that uh, Rob Hampson and, again, several folks on, on, in the anthology here were participants of that was a track called Homo Stellaris, People of the Stars, and it was wrestling with this idea of, you know, hey, we're, we're, in 100 years or whenever it happens, there are going to be a lot of advances in biology and physics and engineering and bioengineering. There are going to be a lot of cultural changes that are just happening to the species and to us. What are we going to be like when we go to the stars? What are the challenges from a biological, sociological, political point of view if we go out in world ships? What, what is it going to require of us uh, in terms of survival to actually become an interstellar species, and how will that change really what it means to be human? And so th- this book is a collection of, of science fiction stories that deal with some of those topics, and essays by uh, scientists and uh, and thinkers who have jobs that relate to the issues I just outlined, who are thinking about the really hard challenges that we're going to face in all those areas as we go to the stars. I I would think Rob might want to talk a little bit more specifically about the working track because it's really what gave birth to this anthology.
2: Yeah, he also Thanks, Rob wrote the uh, the opening essay in the in the piece maybe. Uh, refer to
6: that if you
2: if you might Rob as you as you give us some more
6: well essentially the the opening essay starts off with the considerations of what is it going to take for humans to survive in space in the first place um, What do we need to do to get out there We have we have astronauts living for six months at a time. We've had, uh, we've had two that have lived for a year uh, on the International Space Station, but they're in a fairly low Earth orbit. We've had uh, 27 Americans uh, travel to the vicinity of the moon, which is the furthest anybody's been. We have a lot of unknown area out there. There's a lot of research that is, being, is going on and a lot yet to come. Um, I was absolutely thrilled. I had written this up, uh, written up the idea of the Homo Solaris track at, the working track at uh, TVIW. Um, Dan and Sarah and Kathy, all three were part of a group within that track that I called the Synergy Group, which was to take a lot of the different conversations we talked about. Uh, political ramifications, sociological ramifications, what are the biological ramifications of what is it going to take to uh, organize ourselves over the next hundred years to make this possible. Uh, We as a society don't make many plans that are that long. We have trouble planning five years in advance for, for uh, large social programs and government programs and the like? What is it going to take to, to plan for 100 years and for the next millennium even as we move out to the stars? And given all of the different charges of, okay, take a small piece of this and discuss it, I then charged the Synergy Group with putting all of that together and coming back and making a recommendation, one of those recommendations was that we need to get out in front of the public with the ideas and the inspiration and the dreams of what it would mean to go to the stars. And so coming out of the working track was the idea, let's put together an anthology. And at the time, I had done a lot of background looking into what the – what the human research was that was going on with respect to uh, how the human body uh, reacts, how it behaves, how it's changed in the microgravity of a space station or in the radiation environment out in space. And I had actually summarized what NASA was researching on and then was absolutely thrilled when Les came back and said, hey, One of our contributors is Dr. Mark Shellhammer, who used to be the head of the human research program for NASA. So I go, wait, hey, this is great. So we have a contribution. We have contributions that are talking about the societal questions of security and the medical questions, among others, what is it going to mean when a generation grows up knowing that, they're not on Earth anymore, and their parents made a decision to take them to the stars. And, that, and and then one key question that came up is what's going to happen with the first child born to a new, to, a, to colonists? And those are questions that show up in Sarah's story and Dan's story and Kathy's story. And so it's um, – and, and another as well, we had a uh, – um, Philip Walrab and Casey Izzell, uh both are our, our active-duty military, have written a story that explores the idea of what happens when that first pregnancy is an accident and was not planned. But I really think that there is just a great speculation and, and dreaming about – what if? And and I love the fact that we were able to capture this. One of the um, one
2: of the themes that all of these stories, that um, especially this group stories, that seem to have in common, is the idea that is that humans might adapt to space. We might become space adapted rather than bringing the Earth along with us, in, you know, in, in the form of spacesuits or habitats or what have you, right?
6: i think that's I think that's a valid point. The question that we have is, do we adapt the worlds to ourselves to our biology, or do we adapt our biology to those worlds? Uh, I tried to address a little bit of it in the story I wrote. I think that uh, uh, that uh, Les did the same, and I know that uh uh, Dan and Kathy, in particular, well, I, I'm sorry, and, and Sarah, in particular, have said, you know, address the question of adapting the human physiology to a uh, an alien world.
4: And I think Kathy did, an, and I'd like for her to talk to this because I, I really think she did an excellent job of, of telling a pretty compelling story from a really human point of view of of one adaptation. That had to be made to survive. Uh, I mean, Kathy, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I just thought that was, a, you just really pulled me in uh, when I was editing your story.
3: Oh, thank you. Um, so, right now, there's a lot of really interesting work being done with synthetic biology. And in part, uh, my story was inspired by a paper that I co authored with uh, Ken Roy. Uh, from a previous TVIW uh, it was called uh, the problem with alien biome and it, it it was asking the question you know we're making this some. Assu- we are making some very large assumptions that alien life and earth-based life will be compatible when they might not be they might be producing you know, they might have the same four genetic bases, but they might be producing completely different amino acids and completely different proteins. And then to make compound those differences, we, you know, they could have uh, additional genetic bases. You know, maybe they've got six genetic bases, which then makes for even increasingly different amino acids, different protein conformations, and suddenly you really start to understand just how alien an alien can be. So, I had only looked a little bit into synthetic biology, which is where on Earth, they are introducing um, artificially created genetic bases into the genome, uh, uh, the DNA of E. coli. And right now, I think they're just calling them base X and base Y. And so they're doing this because it gives them the opportunity to perhaps uh, produce uh, some synthetic proteins that would otherwise necessitate a very long and complicated industrial process, uh, which they can completely cut out by using altered E. coli. So I took that, and I ran with it, and I said, hey, we're... These uh additional genetic bases have some very real and very potentially deadly consequences for the people that want to be there. And
6: world.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Kathy, you um you dropped out a little bit there for me. Can you repeat oh, what absolutely. you just said?
3: Um the whole thing? Uh.
6: Just you know,
2: <laughs> The last couple
6: of you had already talked you, uh... about the X and Y bases. You had already talked about the X and Y bases, and the uh, uh, starting to do those experiments. Okay, so
3: they're starting to do experiments with E. coli with these additional synthetic uh, DNA bases, X and Y, and they're hoping uh, to then use these E. coli to produce. Um, Complex uh, chemicals and proteins that they can only now produce using um, industrial scale technology. The idea is to completely circumvent that uh, industrial scale technology and just use some E. coli in a biodite bioreactor. Um, and so I took this idea of you have these synthetic bases on an alien world that. Um, As far as the alien world is, you know, everything on this alien world has these additional bases. This is normal for them. And what happens when you introduce people, humans, into this alien world? Um, And then if your humans are set on staying there and making a go of their colony, what do your humans have to do to survive and thrive?
2: yeah the, please
6: tell me the This of that. story this
2: <laughs> yeah yeah uh this story is called the smallest of things uh and and it is um it as someone who suffers terribly from allergies, it really struck a chord with me um it the this is uh, the idea is um interesting that if alien life is based in DNA, then it we might have it might be more deadly to us than if it were just something completely different, right?
3: Yes. You know, um, in part it comes from, I'm an entomologist. I grew up loving bugs. You know, most of my jobs as a student hourly in college were insect-related. I've had numerous jobs dealing with insects. And in one of those twists of cruel irony, I developed an allergy to butterflies and moths. Um, And so, you know, this this thing was unexpected, but, you know, it got me thinking about allergies and allergic reactions and how even something that you, you know, a butterfly scale, for the most part, isn't going to be an issue for anyone. Unless you're sensitized to it, and, and you know, all of this kind of came together and, and produced that story.
2: Yeah, it's a lot. Of, I mean, the 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 good thing about all of the stories in here, of course, it's where the 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 human and the emotion reach meets the science, um, and this one this one found that spot, that sweet spot. Okay. Uh, maybe we. Sh- uh, maybe we could talk about Sarah's, which is also about um, adapting um, to to unexpected uh, circumstances out there. In this case, it is um, humans have gone out and settled on on a, I believe it's the Ross one twenty eight B, and found a couple of planets there, and then something. Uh, bad happens. Uh, Sarah, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Burn the Boats?
5: Sure. Um, uh, Chef Creason and I, who who is also a a participant at TVIW, although not usually in the biology track, we have been, for about three years now, kicking world building back and forth at each other as our lives got massively crazy and And one of the worlds we had looked at was, one of the the systems we'd looked at was Proxima Virginis. And we had gone and he said that, well, the sun, there is a possibility of the sun misbehaving and, and causing problems for the planet. And we were discussing this back and forth while we were settling on working with a completely, or actually what we're working on right now is in the solar system. So we're establishing a base on Titan and trying to figure out how that would work. And um, uh, imaginary, we're not actually establishing a base. It would be nice, but we're not but so when when I was writing this story that's what came to mind and one of the precipitating events is uh, Rob Hampson's fault of course because while we were at TVIW he posted on Facebook we've just given
6: grandma flippers <laughs> and um <laughs> I remember that. I had forgotten about so, it, but yeah, we did. We gave grandma flippers. So when I set down to write this, because I
5: believe it will be both. I believe that unless there is a reason to colonize a world that requires, requires us to change, and I don't mean change internally or at the level of gut bacteria, or, but change externally, visibly, becoming aliens. That we're not going to do that unless we're pushed to it by circumstances. Something goes seriously wrong, and this is the only way we'll survive. But I also believe humans will survive, and they'll choose to survive, even if it requires them to become aliens. And I believe that even if we become aliens, we'll remain essentially human, at least, you know, for a long time, because we're the product of our evolution, and that human spirit will remain. And that was what the study was about, was uh, finding the humanity even after circumstances force you to change completely. And also, you know, the organization of one of the colonies at least is, is eating even the leaders alive, because it has to be so controlled for them to survive, and and the finding finding joy in adverse circumstances, I guess is what i would say i'm I'm desperately trying not to give stuff away so uh i did I did run all the modifications through um my experts uh because I used to be the closest I got to science was. Being a translator of scientific texts, and it's been a long time since I did that. So, um, so I ran it to my experts, and and what we arrived at is, as far as I can tell, scientifically plausible.
2: Yeah. Well, there is. Um, I mean, I don't think it's giving a huge amount of weight to say that that um, it, it, it's about. Um, the dangers of radiation in space, and and the fact that it's very dangerous yeah. out there. Um, yes. Why um, why is burning the boats important, though, for the for
5: because there's the no in... going back. Because mm-hmm. there is no going back. Uh, in fact, some of the colony chooses to go back, uh, but the ones who stay and the ones colonized, burning the boats. Supposedly, when um, the uh, attack the the Greeks surrounded Troy, they burned the boats to indicate that as long as this siege went on, they weren't going back. They were committed. So, right. That was the metaphor. It's no matter what happens, we're not going back. As far as I can tell, that wasn't true because it doesn't make any sense at the ending. But you know, that's the legend. Um, so that's the 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 idea is that you're totally committed to going out and making this alien world yours. You're not going back. I yeah, and there is also from, a, a
2: a love story that runs through it that um, is about the fact that some uh, make one choice and some ha- might have to make another.
5: Yes, there's actually a couple of them. Yes, that, you know, and and there is no ideal choice. You make the choices, the best choices possible. Um, and sometimes you're influenced by, yes, being in love or uh, sometimes you discover you're still in love even though you thought you weren't or You thought you know, it was an arrangement of convenience, and again, that's part of remaining human. You don't just, you know, it's one of the one of the things I don't like about our concept of of going to space or, or even science fiction. Although I will point out, this is not true in actual science fiction, uh, but in people's vision of science fiction is this idea that, you know, we become these hyper-rational people who go out and just act according to the dictates of reason instead of, instead of responding to to all the emotions we respond to here on Earth. Mm -hmm. If sure i
6: if I could add two things uh one, following up on what Sarah said about going to her experts, I think that one of the things that all of our authors have done is to try to keep this hard science fiction uh anthology a collection this is these stories are very, very plausible. Uh, not only in their science, but then to also follow up on what Sarah has said, they're also very plausible in their human relationships. And I think it is telling that the relationships are as important to the stories in this volume as the science is. And that's one of the reasons I'm just thrilled with how it turned out.
2: Well, speaking of um, deeply emotional stories, maybe we could uh, talk about Les's story. With Les,
6: yeah.
2: Mr. Uh, NASA scientist, wrote a story, uh, short story, mm-hmm. science fiction story called "Nanny" in here that's really moving. Um, can you uh, tell us a little bit about that and talk about that, Les?
4: Well, I, yeah, I'll be glad to. Um, this This story uh, came to me because I, I've I've always kind of dreamed of what would it be like to be among those first explorers in another world and and in science fiction you know the ship lands and and there's usually some crisis that happens but everybody's intact and they they overcome and they proceed but you know what's really going to happen to what are we going to have to do to preserve the gene pool to have genetic diversity when we get to these worlds Uh, somehow I, I don't have a plausibility factor built in for me immediately that we're going to have world ships with thousands of people. More likely it's going to be ships that go to the stars that you have a modest sized crew and you bring embryos or genetic uh, information. So you can kind of create that genetic diversity when you get there. But that then when you decrease crew size, you, you, you start introducing the risks of, you know, something happening that endangers the mission because you don't have a lot of what Jim Bell talks about in his Essay of redundancy, redundancy, redundancy. Right? You know, there's no good redundancy for the people, and and so for me, I wanted to to play around with this notion of what would happen if just about everything went wrong, and and you had to start educating a a whole group of people from scratch of what it means to be human on another world, and and how would you do that, and what could plausibly lead to that scenario happening, and so I I really uh i i really wanted to get into the heads of the people that would be that first generation on another world that are learning to adapt and and survive but they have to do it in a way that nobody expected them to have to do it and that's what i tried to to do in my story
2: well it's not a huge spoiler to to talk a little bit about uh the kid's point of view um can can it's really interesting how they are coming to because they are they they've never been to earth they've never seen earth they've been born here on this new place
4: yeah and and they they're they're, and they're being somebody's caught, not letting it, them
2: it, it, out
4: play. We, go ahead i'm sorry
2: and somebody's not letting them out to play when they're little
4: <laughs> yeah <laughs> well you know i'm i'm thinking about my own kids who are now in their mid 20s and what they were like when they were were, were children and and I, as a parent, uh, you know, you have to make decisions to keep your kids safe as to what you can do and when you can do it sometimes that they don't understand and they question that, right? What, what, what happens when the, when the kids are in the majority, but you don't have a Lord of the Flies situation? You still have some kind of order and you still have some way of trying to protect them and and and, and, and teach them how to be self-sufficient and be civilized and what it means to be human. And so you have this, this group, this large cohort of, of young children growing up in a, in a sheltered environment on another world, essentially in, in a habitat not allowed to go out because there are very few, if any, and I don't want to give too much away, adults that could help supervise that while they're out there, and they have to learn what it is to be human and how to interact with each other and and learn from each other as well as from uh, whatever caretaker robots that you have that are along with you on the trip. and And the frustrations that they would have as kids of having this wonderful place that looks like it's going to be great to go out and play and just not being able to do that. And then the whole notion of experiencing adolescence without adults to role model that for you, um, how terrifying that would be and how mysterious it would probably be. And, I, and I, I, you know, showing my age, I don't think it would be like that film blue lagoon that so many of us sneaked in to see when we were in, uh, in, in middle school. Um, so, uh you know that's that's what came to mind for me is is you know wow these kids are going to have to figure out what it means to be an adult without necessarily having that role modeling
2: yeah it's cool but and you follow them uh as they get older and slowly sort of come to an understanding uh of of where they are what the events are but um uh, it's a story about growing up, as much as it is about the uh, the excitement or the the horror of what happened to spaceship.
4: Yeah, it is, and 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 it was a challenge for me as a writer because uh, the 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 point of view of the child growing up is a girl, and uh, I have to admit I modeled that a lot on the thoughts that my daughter. Uh, Leslie shared with me as she was growing up and her perceptions of, of adult life and life out there. And and so I, I actually was trying to put myself in the head of someone who I knew very well as a child, uh, my own daughter, and, and trying to figure out how she might have reacted in a circumstance like that. And that was a real challenge. And in fact, she was my uh, most critical and helpful beta reader as the story progressed, uh, she's a young twenty-something right now, and uh, remembers very well what it was like to be a young girl growing up not that long ago. And and she gave me a lot of help in the composition of the story, and in particular the view of boys at some of those ages. So I I have to really give a shout out to her. She was very helpful to me. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, it's a very moving and and pretty complex, to- complexly told story that that really hangs together well, nevertheless. Um maybe we could talk about Rob's story as well um those left behind, which is um another uh emotionally riveting sort of story um our two editors uh who are who are scientists uh seem to uh be swimming in emotion when it comes to writing short stories so rob uh we've got a brother and sister um who has kind of a crappy childhood uh, at the beginning of this what's what's going on here
6: they grow up in a dysfunctional home but after they've left home they both become very accomplished in their own fields and they find that they have been selected as part of the crew or part of the colony and crew of the first starship to be heading out to launch Uh, an interstellar colony and they realize that they are leaving Earth forever and maybe, just maybe, they owe it to themselves and to the parents that they're going to be leaving behind to try to have one last Thanksgiving meal together as a family and to try to have the type of experience that they actually never had growing up. And my characters are inspired a little bit by Roger Zelazny's Half Jack, where he had the half cyborg uh, rocket pilot, and also uh, Lois McMaster-Bajold's Quatties in falling free, in which the uh, in in which the main characters, the Quadies, had been uh, genetically and biologically engineered for freefall, and so the sister uh, has cybernetic cyborg implants to assist her in, as a pilot, and the brother has been biologically engineered to be part of the crew that will be awake for large portions of the cruise to the, uh, to the new colony. And so he's been bioengineered to be more functional in a free fall environment. And the two of them come home to not exactly what they had expected. Uh, they get quite a surprise from their parents and they end up with a they end up with a thanksgiving experience that really reaffirms what it means to be human and that again was the thread that i really wanted to get at and, it, and and again i'm quite thrilled that so many of the contributors um followed up with the what does it mean to be human part of the of the concept here and again i had uh, you know, the inspiration was you know sitting down for a family meal. What does it mean when you didn't really get along as a family, and now two members of the family are going to be gone forever, one-way trip uh, out of the solar system, and not coming back? And, and by so, the way, Rob, yes, I played with
4: you introduced a uh, you introduced a really villainous villain. I have to admit, I really detested your villain. You succeeded in in making a really good bad guy.
7: <laughs>
6: well, I appreciate that. I, uh, I I built him on a few people I know. <laughs> well, some of
2: these uh, some of the modifications will lead to people not liking. Uh, as with all human changes and differences Um, you're gonna get people that don't like you because of it Uh, can you say specifically what um, these some of the modifications are because um, they seem pretty science-based for mace and for um, there's a brother's name Alexander right Uh,
6: right Sandy yes Um, uh, Alexander uh, uh, Melisand or mace for short and Alexander, or Sandy, uh, is the brother. And uh, so Melisande has um, essentially uh, basic, has, 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 um, well, a lot of six million dollar man type characteristics of the the bionic arms and legs, but in this case, what they really are are reinforcement of the bone and a reinforcement of the muscle to give it uh, the ability to exert greater force, uh, finer force, and actually to have the ability to uh, very smoothly integrate with electronics, so in the case of uh, uh two of the things that come to her aid are uh resistance to fire and and strength, and also a precision vision uh some modifications to her uh to her eyes so that she can see uh very very small see in the dark um And I believe I gave her the ability to have some very fine manipulative extensions to her fingers as well. Uh, And as far as Sandy's concerned, uh, I had the most fun with a concept of Sandy walking up to the front door of his parents' house with his arms full because he was the cook. He was going to be cooking the Thanksgiving dinner, and he had all the groceries, all the supplies, and he walks up to the front door and realizes that he doesn't dare put anything down. He'll drop it or lose it. He can't turn the doorknob. So he reaches up with his foot, because his hip, his knee, his ankle joints have been modified for more flexibility, and his toes have been lengthened, so that they become almost like fingers. And so he reaches up with his foot, works the doorknob, and enters the house. And that is actually, that's the concept, that's the image I had when I created the character, uh, that I wanted to be able to show that because it would be an indication of just how different he was. Uh, Because... I figured that if he's going to spend a lot of time in free fall, he needed to have more manipulative appendages. He needed to be able to use his feet and his toes in the same way he used his hands and his fingers. So, in fact, I used the phrase fingers uh, to refer to the toes that were now able to be used as fingers. And, and again, I had uh, had a lot of fun with this, but I looked at it and I said, you know, if you're going to do some engineering, this is the type of engineering you need to do.
2: It kind of reminded he kind of reminded me of uh bujol's quddy i don't know if uh
6: yes definitely he, i had i had the quadies very much in mind as i was writing as i was writing his character yeah well
2: let um let's talk about Dan's story um which is uh looking for the title <laughs> exodus it's about. Say it again.
7: Exodus. Exodus. Exodus.
2: Yeah. And it's about a, a, a girl who just takes too much stem, according to her parents.
7: Right. <laughs> She's... Well, there's a little bit more to it than that. But, yes, um, that's that sets up the central conflict that she has with her parents um, and who are part of a group called for uh, Fix Earth First or um, maybe unaffectionately known as Pfeffers. Um yeah, that so,
2: was brilliant. Say that again, Dan. It's they're called feffers, which
7: means Pfeffers. Yeah. Fix fix Earth First. I had to say I so, giggled when I read that the first time. That was great. Um and I mean there are there are actually quite a few feffers that exist. Um they just aren't known as that um as feffers, but maybe they will be in the future. Um so in fact the story takes place um uh, In the future, but maybe not as far as you think um it 's been more than a century since the golden age of science fiction well we 're actually pretty close to that right now um but uh but it is a little farther down the road and I took a a page from um uh John F. Kennedy and uh, said instead of uh I think the way that we need to approach this is to say we're going to do it, and then figure out how we're going to do it, which is kind of what we've been doing with TVIW for several years now. Um, by the way, these uh, uh, we, the presentations that we did at TVIW, I think Kath actually did the presentation for this track, um, are available on YouTube. There is a TVIW uh, channel, um, so any of you, our readers can go out and, and see what it is that inspired us. Um, so, I was trying to uh to capture a few things uh in this story. Part of it is uh technology doesn't always work the way we expect it to um, and sometimes things come out of left field when we're where we're not expecting it um, there has in, been in particular a couple of, of uh, pieces of technology that have been around for a really really long time at this point um the Alcubierre um, warp drive was uh, is 25 years old, and uh, part of the problem is that it requires exotic matter, which we have not yet been able to figure out how to make that happen. Um, so it remains relatively um, fiction uh, as part of or more fiction than science at this point. Um, and there were some other pieces of technology that I uh, that I added in there um, to try to explain how it is um, that we can we might end up getting a shortcutted process. But essentially, what happens is we say we're going to um, Alpha Centauri B, uh, or sorry, Centauri Proxima B. Um, thank you for correcting me, Les. I know I know you should have right there and I heard you in my head. <laughs> <laughs> um so uh which which actually leads to its nickname lead because the you know Proxima Centauri P uh B is P B. Uh so we set our sights on on lead uh and determined that it's gonna take uh, I think it was a hundred and sixty some years uh, to get there at uh, at the, the kind of speeds that we could expect to get to, but we can't do yet. And we were looking for maybe 2% the speed of light um, to be able to make it there. So I had, had to do some math. Uh, it's okay. I have a math degree, so I'm qualified. Uh, and uh, to figure out how it is we were make it get there. But in the process, uh, the main character, um, Ginny, who is a redhead because it's required if you're a Heinlein fan, um is uh uh is doing cryogenic research to try and figure out um how it is that that people who have essentially been hibernated um in cold conditions have managed to survive and see if we can make that repeatable and make it happen um for us so that we could actually survive um that trip rather than having to run it as a colony ship uh, which was one of the things that we discussed. Um, in the uh, the working track in um, at TBIW, uh, so um, she's she's focused on that kind of research and, and things happen um, in ways you don't expect and and uh, and can't really anticipate um, that bring bring um, her pathway around to a different without revealing too much uh, to a different pathway than what she was anticipating. But, you know, when she first signed up for it, it was all about the 160 years, and, you know, I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. Um, because that's kind of the attitude that most of us have. There are, if, if you want to separate it, uh, there, there are two kinds of people, those who answer the question yes or no to uh, would you drop everything that you know and move to Mars if you had the chance. <laughs> um, so there's kind of a sharp division line there, <laughs> uh, yeah. and there's really well, nothing in between. People are either, yeah, I'll do it, or no, I won't. Well, it's not much different when you're considering a much farther star system. So,
2: Yeah, well, that's um, yeah, the division line. I want line to interject the... something. Sure.
4: If, if sure. I can interject something on the comment he, that, that Dan just made just real quick anecdote I, I was in a in a meeting a few years ago in my day job at nasa and it was on a, a mission about mars uh, and the technologies we're going to need to go to mars one day and, and there was a reserved seat in the front of the room that just had four letters on it uh, b-u-z-z um, you can kind of guess who that might have been reserved for of course it was for buzz aldrin and and he wasn't in the room and before he got there the, the debate broke down because there were people who were in favor of robotic exploration of mars and human exploration of Mars. And and they were all arguing about which is the best way to invest what few dollars there are. And it was the human versus robots argument. And Buzz walks in and he sits there for a minute and then he stands up. And as soon as he stands up, a hush goes over the room, right? Because it's Buzz Aldrin and he's getting ready to say something. And he turned around to this audience of space scientists, people who know full well the dangers of space exploration, the risks, the benefits, everything. And he said, how many of you would sign up to take a trip to Mars. and he didn't say one-way trip. He just said would sign up today if, we, if there was a way to go to Mars. And I would say that 75% of the hands in the room went up, including the people who said we should only be sending robots. And, and, and so, you know, Dan's right. I, I think there are going to be people who will raise their hand. If there's a one-way trip to another solar system offered, there are going to be a lot of people who stand up and say, I want to go.
7: I would I would go okay. in a shot. Right. Um but th- there is actually a little bit more to that that discussion. Of course, we had um several presentations uh over the course of of more than one TBIW that talked about um that uh the difference in exploration um manned and, and unmanned. And one of the advantages of an unmanned type of an approach is that you can use um well, solar sail technology, to uh, accelerate a very, very small mass and get it out there a whole lot faster than we can accelerate a ship full of people who can't handle that kind of an acceleration on their bodies. Uh, So there are some advantages in in both of the uh, technologies, Um, but that's um, a discussion for another day. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah, and Les would be good at knowing the answers to that. Those, yeah. <laughs> those questions about solar sales.
7: Les have some it's, experience let, with solar sales, I understand so yeah. <laughs> just a little. <laughs> so let me ask you one other
2: thing, Dan, about this story, which is the um and, and I think at the heart of the story as well is her relationship with her parents is <laughs> the, the way that the parents are not that person, you know, that will go they they really it's it's sort of sad and at the same time um funny that that every time you know our main character takes another uh you know course that we would love our children to take because they're just disappointed because she's not turning out to be a uh you know a flower child stay at home uh uh drinker of uh of soy milk lattes <laughs> Or what have you. I, I, uh, her mother even terms, terms the are group enough.
7: Yeah. Right. Well, I, I, and I have known many people that are like that. Uh, there's also another group that's kind of slipped in there called um, Masters, uh, which is Mothers Against Star Travel. Um, and <sighs> these are all um, – there are people that are like this, and they exist right now. They just don't have a name. I've given them a name. Um anyway, you were leading up to a question but I don't think you actually got there.
2: <laughs> well, the the question is I mean the question is just that um I mean it, the story is in a way an answer to that question is like why don't you stay in Six earth. Um and it's an emotional answer um as well as a scientific answer. Uh, I yeah. guess they, they talk a little bit more about that if you would.
7: Um I'm not sure I can without really giving away the. Um, so yeah. I, I'm I'm gonna have to demur on that one. I think.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, let's um let's open up the. All right. So I think we talked about everybody's stories. Um, Les, um, maybe you could uh, you and and Rob could talk a little bit more about some of the science essays that are in the in the book as well and. Um, just uh, bring out some of the other aspects of the stories we might consider.
4: Um. Well, sure. I'd like to to start out with one of the uh, science essays uh, by an author that I was just exceptionally pleased to get to contribute, but also very surprised he agreed to contribute, and that is uh, Martin Rees. Dr. Rees is the Astronomer Royale of the United Kingdom. He's a sir, which means he's been knighted by the queen. I mean, he's, you know, like the, the the blue blood scientist, friend of Stephen Hawking, that kind of thing. And and at about the time we were collecting and, and identifying contributors to this anthology, I was at a meeting of the Breakthrough Initiatives Foundation at Stanford, and they had brought in Martin Rees as their keynote speaker. So I, I'm super thrilled. He, he gets up, he, he starts giving his talk, and his talk is all about a mixture of, Why is it we haven't uh, seen signs of extraterrestrial intelligence? What would that potentially be like? And he wove that into what his view is of what's going to become of us as we advance in our knowledge of biology, of uh, artificial intelligence, and space travel into the future. And and he was postulating on what we will become when we go to the stars and how we might change and, and be changed by becoming an interstellar species, which is exactly what Stellaris was all about. So I got all excited uh, during hearing his talk, and after it was over, I uh, wasn't a bit shy. I had given my uh, presentation earlier about uh, my work on solar sales, so he knew I wasn't wearing too much of a tinfoil hat, right, um, in terms of credibility. And I went up and approached him and, and said, hey, you know, in my outside-of-work activities, I'm doing this book. Um, we would I would love to have you contribute what you just talked about is an essay for the book because it's right in line what the anthology is all about and I was halfway expecting him to give me the stiff British upper lip look down at me and and tell me that science fiction was beneath him right but he got a big grin on his face and he said oh I love science fiction count me in and, and so I gave him some information we exchanged emails the next thing you know we sent him a contract and we got his essay for the anthology and it's it's a wonderful speculation uh, about um, uh, extraterrestrial intelligence and potential futures for, for us. And I thought it made a, a great overview of the whole philosophy of what Stellaris is all about. I, I was really thrilled to get Martin Reese as a contributor. Rob, Rob well, was your cool. biggest...
2: Um, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead.
4: Go ahead, Tony. No,
2: I'm all I should I shouldn't uh, jump ahead.
4: in. Go ahead. You had a question?
2: No, let's hear from Rob. I'd like to hear his uh his take on the science and the uh, of the stories and the, the uh science essays.
6: Well, I've already mentioned how thrilled I was when Les announced that he had Dr. Mark Schohammer, uh, who would talk about a lot of the human risks? Uh, in spaceflight and space environments. I was prepared to do a summary and I said, oh no, 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 Mark's going to handle this much, much better than I can. So I was absolutely thrilled to have that. We also looked, uh, Jim Bell had put together a short little piece called Our World Ship Broke. And he too was part of these discussions at the Homo Solaris working track, and had also sat in on working track a year before, or the 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 some, the symposium before on world ships. And Jim is a nuclear engineer. He's a person who wrote. Uh, compliance documents and reviews and inspections and the like uh, for various uh, nuclear regulatory bodies, both uh, Department of Defense and and government and civilian government. And so, um, Jim's mantra is redundancy is good. Redundancy is good. And those of us who know him say, and redundancy is even better. And so he he <laughs> gave us an essay. Uh, he gave us an essay on the the need for this, the need for our engineering to be uh, multiply redundant and to be resilient. Uh, we had uh, Dr. Nikhil Rao um, talked a lot about the medicine of spaceflight, interstellar flight, and he's very... Um, He's very well qualified to talk about uh, both the psychiatry and the psychology of the colonists and, in particular, uh, how the children, uh, the offspring of the colonists, are going to be affected by this entire endeavor. Um, uh, Michael Massa, who has uh, written for Bain, uh, has... uh, provided an essay on security, security, uh, securing the stars, uh, he called it, and talked about what is it going to take to make sure that we can actually make these missions happen. Um, You know, Rob, that
4: that essay by Mike Massa kind of uh, really opened my eyes. I guess I had been like a lot of other people where, I I forgot who it was in this discussion earlier, you know, talked about how we were all going to go out and be rational beings and, Create this uh, uh, utopian, rational driven society. And, and Mike, uh, in his essay, it really brought home the fact that we are going to have to really sacrifice a lot of our cherished liberties in order to have a situation where something doesn't happen like I happen in, had happened in my story, where one individual goes rogue and wreaks havoc and causes disaster, right? And so, uh, you know, Mike Moss's story about the security implications to me, was one of the most eye-opening essays in the whole volume because it really educated me on, on some issues that I don't normally think about when I think about long-term space travel.
6: And that actually came out of the 2018 TVIW Symposium where we had a working track on security. And that is um, that was largely the impetus behind Mike's writing uh, when we discussed it. I, I just think the... The neat juxtaposition of the nonfiction and the fiction, um, because I've got to say, these authors get it. They all get it. Um, Les and I, as scientists, are trying to say, okay, we can do this. There's science that will support an interstellar, uh, an interstellar civilization. We don't have it all yet, and we have to develop it. But we have to figure out how to get the society and the public and the dreamers and the would-be colonists to buy in. And, and our, 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 our authors, our dreamers, get it and have really helped put together this volume.
4: Well, you know, the, the story that, that you're saying that just made me think of was Kevin Anderson's story, uh, Time Flies in terms of getting it because you know these distances that even traveling at speeds approaching the speed of light are are just daunting and they're going to take in terms of a human lifetime a long time and if you play around with the fact that uh, there's this thing called special relativity which means the faster you go and the closer you get to speed of light your clock starts running different than it does back home and and it slows down for you um, Kevin Anderson's story about a crew of a, of a ship that's out on the fringes of where humanity has settled in the stars and it takes you know, decades to go from one star system to the next and perhaps a hundred years has passed outside of the ship in terms of time on planets really deals with the loneliness and the, uh, the, the toughness that the people who are on these ships will have to have in terms of an emotional guard against forming attachments and, and thinking about the people they've left behind. Um, in, in terms of, you know, a kick in the gut, I, I think Time Flies kind of gave that to me as the story evolved because of, of, of the perceived loneliness that the people are going to experience that, that might be on some of these ships on the edge of the frontier. So the, in addition to, to accurate science, I think he wove the accurate science of what happens to relative rates of passing of time and how long it takes to travel these distances into really just a gut-wrenching story of the emotional loss that occurs, you know, when you make the decision to make these kind of commitments.
2: Yeah. Now have all of y'all, all all of y'all that are here uh, with us now have, have gone to the Tennessee Valley interstellar workshop. What is it about this stew of, um, of incredibly interesting people? Um, Maybe Sarah, talk about it a little or Dan uh, or Kathy. The, uh, what is it that is so special about this place and this meeting, and um, uh, it, it, what has it meant to you to be part of it?
3: I ended up at TVIW, uh, due directly to Les Johnson. Um, there was a year it was held at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and that was the year that I was getting my math, uh, I was graduating with my master's from UT Knoxville. And I was going to the hotel to meet up with Speaker after my master's presentation. Speaker is Rob, by
2: the way. Yes. yes. Speaker is Rob. Rob
3: was there. Um, Rob was there. Uh, I was meeting with him. Les saw me there and said, oh, hey, you're here. I want you in on this track. We need more biologists. (laughs) and did not run away fast enough. I,
5: I don't even remember how I got involved, except that it was a chance to discuss some of the problems and maybe fractionally make it more likely that humanity will go to the stars. I was six. At the time of the moon landing, I helped my brother broke in, break into our, okay, I broke into my aunt's house so that we could see the landing on TV. My brother, was 10 years old, kind of stood by and said, you're good at this. Uh, we paid for the window we broke and if she didn't want the window broken she shouldn't have locked the house and gone on vacation when we were going to have a moon landing and she had the only private TV in the village. But, uh, you know, I watched the moon landing and I was sure, I was sure in my gut that there would be space colonies by the time I was grown up. And if they Can't be true. I want my kids or my grandkids to make it to the stars. And if there's anything at all I can do to push us in that direction, I will do so because I think it's important for humanity to have other footholds outside our very fragile cradle. I think it's important for human survival.
4: I guess what, what we really want to do with this book, first and foremost, is 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 a combination of entertain and inform. Uh, you know, I, I uh, trace a large part of my interest in studying physics and working for NASA to reading good quality, and some crap, I have to admit, but good quality science fiction that, that I actually came away not only being entertained, but I, I learned something from it, or I got excited about science from it. And And this anthology... I hope that when people read it, they, they read it, they get excited about the stories, they're touched by the stories, but I also want them to learn something. I want them to think about what's possible. I, I get really, quite frankly, I just get really upset at all the dystopian fiction that, that's out there and how popular it is and how, how in fashion it is these days to think that tomorrow is going to be worse than today and that our best days are behind us and all that stuff. I. You know if you look at the trends of human history, that really hasn't has not been the case. Um, our future is so full of possibility, and there are so many things we can do to make tomorrow better than today. And a big part of that is is the exploration development of space and leading us to as Sarah said, get out of the cradle and go to the stars and And I'm hoping that this book will be read by enough people and perhaps you know, although I'd like everyone who reads it to buy a copy, I'm not going to object if people pass it around to their friends because I want them to know that there's an optimistic view that that you don't have to buy into this the the gloom and doom. Uh, we, we've got a bunch of people here who who are working in the field and various science fields who who share a positive view of that human future, and and I think we need to affect the culture. We need to get that view back because when When I was uh, reading science fiction early on, and and I think Rob's probably in the same boat and some of the other authors that are are involved here, it it was an optimistic time about the future, and the future has been pretty good. Uh, We may not have done all the things we thought we were going to do in space travel, but we're finally making that progress. So in terms of what I want to do with this, I want this book to influence people to be positive and think about what's possible, not what's impossible. And... I have to say, w- one comment on that is uh, Sam Kennedy's uh, artwork, which is on the cover, shows uh, the current configuration of the International Space Station is this little tiny uh, uh, piece of hardware that has this enormous uh, shipyard in space attached to it with what are, are the interstellar uh, craft going out to explore the universe. Well, that configuration isn't going to happen, I've had a lot of my friends and colleagues who are in the field look at that cover and they just love it because it, it rekindles in them that sense of optimistic adventure of why they went into the space business to begin with. And, and that felt good to have that that reaction from people who looked at just even looking at the cover of the book. So that, that's my answer to your question.
2: Cool. Well, the book is called Stellaris, People of the Stars, edited by Les Johnson and Robert E. Hampson. Uh, I want to thank Les and Robert and Rob Hampson and Sarah A. Hoyt, Daniel Hoyt, and Catherine Smith uh, for uh, joining us here on the podcast. Thank you so much, folks. Thanks for, Thanks having, so us, thank for having us, Thanks, Thanks for having us. you
7: for having us.
1: Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of The Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword.
0: Chapter 38 Ashok woke to the sounds of children screaming. He may have been an outcast, but a man didn't just forget 20 years of training. Protectors always ran toward the sounds of trouble. With a reaction that was automatic and unconscious, he rolled out from under the wagon, buckling his sword belt as he went. The animals were all looking in the same direction, ears erect and curious. The noise was coming from outside the back of the barn. Ashok threw open the double doors and walked into the freezing light. The first rays of the sun were just intruding into the canyon, but the reflection was stark and bright. It must have dropped far below freezing during the night because the torrential rain had begun freezing as it struck, building in ever-increasing layers until the entire valley had been coated by the ice storm. Everything was frozen and slick. Beautiful clusters of ice hung from branches, so heavy that the trees were bowed and lopsided. After, the freezing rain had tapered off and the ice world had been dusted with fresh snow. Having left his boots beneath the wagon, his bare soles crushed the snow and stuck to the ice. His toes began to sting with the cold. There were six people there, but the screaming had stopped, apparently because a man was holding the noisemaker's face down in a water trough. From the ragged clothing and rail-thin limbs, it was the castless girl who slept in the barn. She was struggling against the attempted drowning thrashing against the strong hands mashed against the back of her head The castless boy was there as well calling out for his sister and struggling against the men holding him back The boy was silenced when one of the men grabbed a handful of rags and hurled him against the wooden fence The boy collapsed sobbing The four men were worker caste, mostly young all large and strong, with big arms, calloused palms, and thick necks. Three of them were wearing the insignia of the minor subcast, and the big knives on their belts were considered tools rather than weapons, but they'd open a man's guts either way. The last was the oldest, with hair that had gone white and muscle that had turned to fat. Ashok analyzed all that in a heartbeat, then demanded, What's going on here? This is my inn, and this little fish eater stole from one of my guests. The old one shouted, to be heard over the gurgling and splashing child. Drowning her would send a message to the rest. He wasn't a protector anymore. This was none of his affair. He had orders from the highest levels of the government. Getting involved here would only draw unwanted attention. The correct thing to do would be to walk away. Let her up. A miner pulled the girl back by the hair. She heaved and gasped. The trough had been frozen over, too, but from the fresh cuts, they'd broken through the ice with her forehead. Diluted blood ran quickly down her face. The boy called his sister's name, but a miner shoved him over with his boot, sliding him across the ice. My apologies for waking you up with all the noise, honored guest. The innkeeper didn't want to chase off any customers, but a man in the mood to murder had very little patience. But she's mine, and she stole. Law says I can do what I want. The law didn't care what anyone wanted. What did she steal? Ashok asked, already suspecting the answer. A blanket and some food. We caught her around back passing out good meat to some of the other fish eaters. You'd best check your wagon, merchant. One of the miners laughed. They'll rob anything not nailed down. This altercation was his fault. There's been a misunderstanding. Those things weren't stolen. I gave them as a gift. The hell you did. Who gives away good stuff to untouchables? The innkeeper yanked the girl around by her wet hair. She fell hard, curled into a ball and covered her face. Ah, trading a little skin on the side now, are you? I'm surprised you thought this one was worth that much. Well, she's mine. So I should have gotten paid for that, not her. Not passing it on. Law says that's stealing either way. Ashok ground his teeth together until the muscles of his jaw ached. Sensing his mood, and Grooverdal didn't even bother suggesting how to kill these fools. They weren't worth the sword's effort. Don't try to quote the law at me, you ignorant swine. The miners shared nervous glances. They'd just come out here to participate in the fun of drowning a disobedient untouchable and hadn't expected a fight. Easy, friend. Now need to get riled up over the likes of these, the youngest of them said. You want to speak of law? The cold air did nothing to calm Ashok's anger. He crunched across the ice, heading toward the innkeeper. The law says overseers are supposed to provide adequate sustenance. They're nearly starved to death with a fat ass like you in charge that tells me you've been stuffing your face with their rations. These untouchables belong to your Thakur, who places them as he sees fit. They're owned by your house, not you. They're not to be used up and thrown away stupidly by some pathetic scum like you. You keep running your mouth, you're likely to get hurt, another miner warned. Technically, a merchant was of higher status than they were, but they were in a backwoods village, in the middle of nowhere, behind a barn, with no witnesses. Status didn't mean much in such situations. They'd seen he had a sword at his side, and were eyeing it nervously, but there were four of them, and one of him, And after all, it wasn't like anyone expected a merchant to really know how to use a sword. He stopped right in front of them, knowing what was coming because he could feel it in the charged air. A miner swung a fist at Ashok's face. He caught it in the flat of his palm and squeezed
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Bain intern Caroline Irwin and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a whiskey and bromide concoction that catalyzes interstellar hibernation with a smile and a sigh. Plus thanks, praise, and gratitude for Les Johnson, Robert E. Hampson, Sarah A. Hoyt, Kathy Smith, and Daniel Hoyt, editors and authors of Stellaris, People of the Stars. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars.